The challenge pastors face at Easter and, and Christmas and, and these, these major holidays is, is how, to, how to preach on the subject differently from the year before. You know, we've got nine years together as, as a body, as a church, and I've preached nine, I think, Easter sermons, and, and every year you kind of have to come at the same subject, maybe a little differently. Uh, the, the real key, and something I discovered in the last couple of weeks, or really in the last week, was the key to maybe successfully achieving this isn't found in the preacher's or the pastor's creativity or his cleverness. It, it's not in his ability to reinvent the wheel over and over, year after year. It's not there. It's not in the worship team's artistic expression. Uh, I thought Kelly's guitar was going to blow me out of my shoes. <laughs> the, the key to, to preaching the resurrection in a way that's different from the years before is it's found in Scripture itself because Scripture presents the resurrection of Christ in a multitude of ways, a multitude of ways or in a variety of ways. And as I began to ponder what I might speak on this time, while also considering the current state of affairs in our culture, because it's good to be mindful of what's going on around us, because we want to preach the Word in a way that, that makes sense to our society and the surroundings and these sorts of things. As I kind of began to ponder and I was considering what's going on, a particular passage came to mind, and it came to mind very strongly. That's Acts chapter 17, verses 30 and 31. I'm not sure that I've ever heard an Easter message from this text. I'm not sure we're supposed to even use it for Easter. You're probably going to get about two-thirds of the way through this sermon and say to yourself, what the heck does this have to do with Easter? But because the resurrection of Christ is mentioned in it, there it is. It's just not a typical text that you would use like Maybe Matthew 28, verses 1 through 10, that kind of lay out the, the tomb and the empty tomb and, and the people that witnessed it and were kind of blown away. I think before we really get into this text, it, it's a smart idea to go ahead and pray, and then we need to take a look at the context, because the context is truly amazing to this text in Acts 17. Let's go ahead and pray for God's help first. Father, we come to you now and ask for your help, that you would open our eyes and our ears and our minds to the truth. Lord, we have been conditioned by our culture and our surroundings to accept certain types of sin and, and things, sinful things and, and immoral things that are pervasive in our culture. We have been conditioned over the years to accept these things as normal. And when we hear the Word of God, it, it challenges us. When we hear a sermon on the things that we're going to be talking about today, it can be very challenging, but what we need to do is not shoot the messenger, and more importantly, we need to not reject the clear teachings of Scripture. And so, Father, we ask for your help this morning that you humble us and give us open eyes and open ears, open hearts, open minds to the truth. And we pray, Lord, I, I pray especially for myself that, that this congregation that hears this message this morning would sense that it's coming from a heart of love, not a heart of condemnation, not a heart of impatience or anger. Father, just from a heart of love for others, a strong desire to see others saved and come to a saving knowledge of Christ, to have their lives changed. Father, I pray that, that that would be the vessel that you would create in me now, and that's how you'd use me. Help to guard my, my tongue and my mind during this time. Make us receptive to your word. Teach us from Scripture this morning. We thank you for the risen Christ in advance. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So our text this morning is Acts chapter 17, verses 30 and 31, and the context behind it, what's playing out before we get to it, is just astonishing. I need to just go over some things with you because I think the right way to teach the Word is to try to bring it into context. You know, the meaning 
of any particular verse is found in the context. That's what determines the meaning. And so we need to talk a little bit. Uh, Paul's second missionary journey, we're talking about the great apostle Paul, his second missionary journey is recorded in Acts chapters 16 through 18. And chapter 17 records his time in, in particular cities like Thessalonica. We see that in Acts 17, verses 1 through 9. And then in a city called Berea. Berea, we see that in Acts chapter 17, verses 10 through 15. And then in Athens, Athens, Greece, Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 34. Our verse falls within that context. When Paul left Berea, he left alone, and he left in a big hurry. Why? Because the Jewish religious leaders that ran the synagogues in that community, they had stirred up the crowds against him. And we see this in Acts chapter 17, verses 13 and 14. So Paul has to leave Berea in haste because people are threatening his life for preaching the gospel. And this happened to him just about everywhere he went. And when he arrives in Athens, he sent word for Silas and Timothy, his companions, to come and join him. He had to leave them behind because he had to get out of there in a hurry. Acts 17, verse 15. And while he was waiting for them to arrive in Athens, he began to look around the city of Athens and he noticed that it was full of statuary or idols, false gods. He noticed them everywhere and his Spirit, it says in the text, his spirit provoked him, or he was provoked in his spirit, and he felt like with all these idols around him, all these false gods, all of this stuff going on in the Athenian culture, he felt like he had to say something about it. He didn't feel like he could sit around and wait for Silas and Timothy without actually speaking up and saying something about what was going on around him. And, and, and I think that as soon as I read that verse, that's Acts chapter 17, verse 16, I felt the same way that Paul did. When we stop and pause and take a breath and look around us, we see a lot of things going on, don't we? A lot of crazy things happening in our culture, things that I never imagined I'd see. And I think we feel a bit like Paul. You know, we're, maybe we're waiting for something in particular, but as we, as we take a look around, we, we feel like, man, look at what's going on in our society and in our culture, in our immediate uh, context here, and I, you just feel like Paul did. I think I've got to say something about this. That's how I feel. That's how Paul felt nearly 2,000 years ago as he looked around and surveyed Athens. So as he waits, he's compelled to speak up. He sees the rampant idolatry and really the destruction of lives because of this idolatry. All these false gods these people are worshiping and he just, he can't stand idly by. He has to speak up. Oh, those guys will get here eventually. I'm looking at my watch here, but I've got to do something. I think we feel the same way. I certainly do. In customary fashion, Paul begins to go around and visit the local synagogues. And he begins to reason from Scripture, preaching Jesus and the resurrection. This is what he does. This is his response to the rampant idolatry in Athens. He can't sit still. He has to say something. He goes around and preaches Christ. He preaches the resurrection. Epicurean and Stoic philosophers had basically witnessed or listened to some of Paul's preaching in some of these synagogues, and they actually kind of thought he was a dork. But at the same time, they thought, well, maybe he should come and speak at the Areopagus, which was the meeting place for the Athenian bigwigs. Acts chapter 17, verses 18 and 19. They're kind of interested in his preaching because they think that he's preaching another God that they can potentially add to their pantheon of gods. And they say, well, this guy's kind of a dork, but maybe, I mean, he sounds pretty clever. He sounds like he knows what he's talking about. He's got conviction. He can't even wait for his friends. He's got to let the cat out of the bag. Maybe we should have him come up to our little Supreme Court or our city council meeting and present his ideas. This is their thinking. Areopagus is where the city council members and, 
and the philosophers of that day. It's where they gathered to share new ideas. Acts 17, verse 20. When Paul entered the area of Pagus, it was kind of a flat piece of granite that was pretty large with seats around it in a, in a round fashion. And it's where guys would stand up in the middle and present their ideas. And when he gets to this area of Pagus, he goes right to the middle, as was customary, and he gives his address. He began by saying, this is basically my paraphrase of the text, men of Athens, I can tell that in, e in every conceivable way you are extremely religious. While I was walking here to speak to you, I observed the objects of your worship, a literal pantheon of deities, statues everywhere. You've got a God for everything. And I even noticed an empty altar with the inscription that says, to the unknown God. You're so religious that you added, you added an altar to the unknown God just in case you missed a God. And I have come here today to tell you about this unknown God, this God you do not know. That's why I'm here. Paul was just a brilliant preacher. He always contextualized. He pulled right from their culture, took truth, and applied it to it. He's using their false religion to preach true religion. And this is what he does, and we see this in Acts chapter 17, verses 22 to 23. And Paul's opening lines set the stage for what he was about to boldly declare. And I tell you, this was a bold declaration. You had to have some clout and some guts to get up and preach the things that he was about to preach here in front of these people. This took guts. Men can't even handle their normal pulpits these days, let alone be like Paul. The first thing that Paul does is he acknowledges just how religious the Athenians are. He could see with his own eyes how they had applied religion to every area of their lives. They had a God for fertility, a God for the sun, a God for the moon, a God for the weather. A, that God apparently gets pretty angry. A God for the sea, a God for love, a God for hunting, a God for literally everything that you can imagine. The Athenians had a God for that. There were over 72,000 statues in Athens at this time. How many statues do you think there are in Modesto? I've seen a few bronze ones around. There's a nice police one in front of the police station. There used to be uh, a Native American in front of a, a storage facility over here of all places. I don't know if he was protecting the place or whatever. Think about that. 72,000 statues in the, cities of, in the city of Athens at this time. All of them depicting a false god. No wonder Paul couldn't sit tight. He was probably staying at the Holiday Inn and outside his window there was 32 of them. I can't do this. I can't wait for these guys. Look at this idolatry. These people are destroying themselves. In Acts chapter 17 uh, verses 24 to 28, Paul boldly declares eight things about the Athenians' unknown God, who is actually the one true living God. So he takes that, that empty altar and he says, I'm going to describe to you the missing unknown God. And he says eight things about this God here, which is his God. Firstly, he is the God who made the world and everything in it. Acts chapter 17, verse 24a now, the Epicureans rejected God as creator because they believed all matter is eternal. Everything's been around forever. If all matter is eternal, then it would not have needed to be created by a creator God, right? The Stoics were pantheists. They believed that God was in everything. God is in the rocks. God is in the stars. God is in the dirt. God is in the water. God is in the animals. God is in people. Basically, what Paul is saying is, you're wrong. The unknown God is actually the one true living God who created the world and everything in it. He created all things. So in a very nice way, Paul is laying siege to their philosophical and religious ideas. 
Secondly, Paul says he is the Lord of heaven and earth, Acts 17, 24b. Not only is, is the, the unknown God here the God and creator of all things, he is the sovereign Lord over all things is what Paul is saying. He exercises total and absolute control over the cosmos. He is the divine ruler. Lord means there is no one higher than God. That's how it translates. There is no one above God, Paul is saying when he says Lord. This would have been a a really shocking statement to Paul's hearers. The highest Athenian deity was Zeus. We've heard of him. You've seen Clash of the Titans. Is it Lawrence of Olivier who plays him? Did a pretty good job, but still nowhere near God level. The highest Athenian deity was Zeus, and Paul just said that the unknown God who created all things is Lord over Zeus. <laughs> this is a fast track to getting killed. Seriously. Thirdly, Paul says this unknown God, the true God, does not live in temples made by man. <laughs> Acts 17:24c. The Athenian gods were man-made statues and carvings that sat on pedestals and shrines. Paul is saying that the unknown God, the God who created and rules over all, does not sit on pedestals and man-made temples like your little idol gods. He doesn't sit on these pedestals dumb and mute in your little shrines to your gods. He's nothing like this. Paul's intense. I mean, he's, he's nuts. Fourth, Paul says this unknown God, the true God, is not served by human hands as though He needed anything, since He Himself gives all mankind life and breath and everything, Acts 17.25. (laughs) Think about it. How much service went into keeping the Athenian idol gods and all these statues looking pretty and presentable? Think about the maintenance that went into 72,000 statues. It took a undoubtedly took an army of servants to maintain all of those little gods. And if they didn't take care of those little gods, what would happen to them? They would dilapidate. They would fall apart. Wow, Zeus needs shining. Better get over there, Fred. Therefore, the Athenian gods were what? They were dependent upon the Athenians, right? Paul says, in effect, the unknown God, the God who created and rules over all, is unlike your idol gods in this regard. He does not need our help. He does not require service and maintenance. He is not dependent on His creatures. His creatures are, in the exact reverse, dependent on Him. He is actually the giver of life and breath and everything, Paul says. You guys are giving everything you have to these statues when the true God, the unknown God, gives everything to you. It's in the reverse, he says. Fifthly, Paul says this unknown God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth or on, on all the face of the earth. Uh, Acts chapter 17, 26a in Greek religion or Really, it's mythology. The creation of all things was thought to be divided amongst many gods. This God created this, that God created that, and so on. Paul proclaims that the unknown God, the God who created and rules over all, is the creator of all people and nations, and he did it through one man. And who do you think he's speaking of there? Adam. This statement attacked the national pride of the Greeks who thought that non-Greeks were the product of lesser gods, called them barbarians. That's where that title comes from. And this statement from Paul also attacks and destroys Darwin's theory of evolution, right? Six, Paul says, This unknown God, the true God, determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him, Acts 17, 26b and 27a. The Epicurean and Stoic philosophers did not believe that the gods 
controlled or intervened in human affairs. Paul says this is precisely what the unknown God, the God who created and rules over all, actually does. He is involved in the affairs of men, unlike your false deities, he's saying. Gives an example. He determined how long men will live, where they will live, and he reveals his existence through what he has made. And verse 27a points to general revelation. God revealing Himself to humanity through creation so that men would seek and feel their way toward Him, that they would know that He exists. Creation makes God known because it displays His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, Romans chapter 1, verse 20. And boy, are we going to spend some time in Romans 1 pretty quick here. And yet, instead of seeking and, and feeling its way, talking about humanity here, instead of seeking and, and feeling its way toward God, because God has revealed Himself through nature and creation, what happens? Humanity does the opposite. It suppresses the truth of God's existence in unrighteousness, Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Humanity knows that God exists but it refuses to honor and give thanks to God, Romans 1.21. It exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things, Romans 1.23. Boy, doesn't it sound like Paul's describing the Athenians there in Romans 1? Well, he was describing the Romans, and they were almost identical to the Athenians or Greeks. They both had a mythology with pantheons of gods on top of gods, multitudes of gods. And seven, this unknown God, He is not far from each one of us. Acts chapter 27, verse B, the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers that Paul is essentially addressing here, they believe that God is far off in the distance. He is transcendent to the point of being remote. Maybe seated on a, a throne a, atop of Mount Olympus, some distance. But Paul says the unknown God, the God who created and rules over all, is nearby and present in the world. We call this the imminence of God, the imminence. We as Christians believe God is transcendent. He's independent of the material universe and beyond all physical laws. But we also believe in imminence, that God is present in our physical world and, and capable of being known to His creatures through general and special revelation. This is essentially what Paul is saying here. You've got a God who's way out there in the distance. You can't even get to Him. The unknown God is here and has made Himself known. This is what he's saying. Lastly, eight, the unknown God, the true God... It is in Him, Paul says, that we live and move and have our being, for we are indeed, indeed, pardon me, indeed His offspring, Acts 17, verse 28. The last point Paul makes is he really deliberately cites from one of their own philosophers, a well-known philosopher who doesn't appear to be way off in his theology. God is, Paul is essentially saying God is not only nearby, He is the one who gives life and mobility and, and, and He gives being, which refers to our dignity and worth as His image bearers. That's what He's saying to these people. They didn't have a God of all their gods that really represented them in the way that the true God represents them. And in Acts chapter 17, verse 29, Paul issues an initial warning that prepares his listeners for his ultimate warning in the next two lines. So he's done what so far? He has entered the area Pagus, and he has identified and unpacked and defined and described for them the unknown God, which is the true God, who he has described as utterly completely different from the gods that they have representing them. This is what he's done. And now he gives an initial warning. And he's really just setting up for his big warning in the text that we're going to focus on. Here it is in 29. Being then God's offspring, 
right, as His image bearers, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. This is what he says. In other words, as God's image bearers, you better not make the mistake of equating the God I'm presenting to you to one of your idols. Don't, don't think of the unknown God that I'm presenting to you as just another one of your idols, is what he's saying. And he's saying, you better not fashion an image. After we're done here, you better not go and fashion an image, create a statue resembling him, and then put it on a pedestal in one of your temples. Essentially what Paul is saying, I didn't come here to give you another God for your list of gods. Don't think of the God that I'm presenting to you in the same way that you think of your other gods. Do not attempt to... Add the Creator, Lord God, to your pantheon of deities. This is the pre-warning that He's giving them. The unknown God is completely different from all your gods. Don't think of Him in the same way. Don't try, to, don't try to recreate Him in the form of some kind of a statue. Don't do it. That's what you've done all the time with all these other gods. And all of those other gods are probably bad representations of the true God who is sovereign over all those things. But instead of finding the true God, they have created gods in their own image. And he's just warning them, saying, don't think of him like gold and silver like your other gods. And now we've come to our text. Took a little bit to get there, huh? That's the context. That's what's happening in the background. It's pretty fascinating. And now we come to our text, 17 verses 30 and 31. And this is so critical. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed, and of this He has given assurance to all by, here's Easter, by raising Him from the dead. That's Paul's ultimate warning in this text. The phrase, the times of ignorance, is a, is a little misleading, I think. It's just the way the, the translators rendered it in English. It certainly does not mean that God has given some sinners a free pass because they mistakenly worshipped idols and didn't know any better. That's how some people try to interpret that phrase, and that is not what it means. All men are without excuse. All people are without excuse. Romans chapter 1, verse 20 even the pygmy on a deserted island is without excuse. Why? Because God has made Himself known through His creation. Paul was, by making that statement, the times of ignorance God overlooked, he was simply being kind to the Athenians, that's all. It was as if he was saying, look, up to this point God has withheld His judgment against you. You've acted ignorantly toward Him, but I'm here to tell you that those days are now over. You can't continue on in ignorance after I've spoken to you. That's what he's saying. He's just being kind and gracious. We typically define ignorance as lack of knowledge, but in Scripture, this word can refer to something else, like here. It can refer to lack of morality, as it does in this verse. Paul is not speaking of just, a, uh, just a, an ignorance of the truth or of reality. He's talking about a lack of morality. Not just a lack of knowledge about God, but a lack of morality. The Athenians were ignorant of God, not because they had no knowledge of Him, because God has made Himself known through creation, but because of rampant immorality. It was their sin that blinded them. And we can tell that they sensed God's, the true God's existence and, and presence, right? I mean, this is why they created an altar to the unknown God. They could sense that there was a, another God out there, and they, they didn't want to fully dishonor Him. They didn't really want to worship Him the way that you should, but they didn't want to fully forget about Him, so they created an altar to Him. This shows that they, they could sense through creation that their existence and their relationships and these things that, man... There's got to be another God out there. They, they knew. They created an altar to Him. 
but they preferred to worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever and ever. Amen. Romans 1.25. Now, the Athenians are not the only people who did this. Right? They're not the only ones who basically have forsaken the true God to worship idols or create idols or create gods that, that represent them the way they want to be represented. They're not the only people who have done this. The entire world has done this. All people have exchanged the truth about God for a lie. All people worship idols. All people suppress the truth in unrighteousness. This is a fact. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, right? Romans 3.23, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, Isaiah 53.6. In the whole world, all people stand condemned under the law of God, Romans 3.19. And this is why Paul is, is saying here in this text that God is commanding all people everywhere to repent. It's not just that he's, he's calling you Athenians to repent of your idolatry. He's calling men and women from every tribe and tongue from all over the world. We need global repentance here. God is calling and commanding global repentance. That's what Paul is saying. <clears throat> now, I want you to think for a moment about the state of our society, the state of our culture. Boy, does it fit with Romans chapter 1. When you read Romans 1 slowly and carefully, you, you almost feel like it's a prophecy about America. You really do. You can't, you can't miss it. If you miss it, you've been enculturated and can't see the truth the way you should. Just think about the state of our society. <clears throat> In Romans chapter 1, verses 24, 26, 27, and 28, Paul describes what happens when God unleashes His wrath upon a society that has forsaken Him. Romans 124, here's the first thing that we see. Think, think of our culture, think of America. He gives them over to their lusts and they dishonor their bodies among themselves. You know what that is? That's a sexual revolution. That's what that is. Those who have been given over to lust by God will ignite a sexual revolution. When did the sexual revolution in America begin? That's right, probably the 1960s. It's hard to imagine, like I said last week, it's hard to imagine Leave it to Beaver being around during that time. That would have been a whole different Leave it to Beaver. <laughs> wow. Leave it to Beaver with bell bottoms. I think the 60s. And, 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 and so, right, we've had a sexual revolution here. Here's a parallel. What has this sexual revolution, which is kind of trailing off, but I think it's still around a bit, but what has it led to? What has it led to? It has led to a variety of destructive social diseases. It has led to destroyed marriages. It has led to destroyed families. It has led to destroyed lives, namely 50 million unwanted babies who were aborted in the womb. There's your sexual revolution. America had one and it's still kind of in it. 50 million unwanted babies aborted just in America since 1973, since Roe v. Wade. We're not talking global. Now some would argue, well, abortion rates have dropped and maybe they have a little bit, but they're still killing babies. Why? So they can keep having sex without consequence. That's a sexual revolution. We move to the next set of verses. Right, so you got a sexual revolution. Romans chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Here's the next phase. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Paul is speaking of 
homosexual revolution here. That's what he's speaking of. Those who have been given over to lust by God will ignite a homosexual revolution. This is happening in America now, right now, right now. When did it begin? I'd say probably the 1980s. Probably the 1980s, and we didn't really see it gain real good traction until the Obama era, and that's not to take shots at Obama, but that's when we really saw it begin to take off. Hollywood and the Supreme Court of the United States ruling in 2015 has given them this movement really strong legs, right? Especially Hollywood. They've done just about everything they can down there to normalize sexual immorality. And, and not just homosexual immorality, but heterosexual immorality. Every conceivable form of sexual immorality comes out of Hollywood. And they've done everything they can down there to normalize sexual sin. Everything they can. And they're still doing it today. Now here's the tragic, real tragic part. I, I suppose that's tragic, but this is really tragic too. Notice how Paul says the participants of a homosexual revolution, they receive in themselves the due penalty for their error. Wow. Wow. Have we not seen this? You know, from the earliest days of HIV, gay and bisexual men have been among the hardest hit groups in the United States. While gay men make up less than 2% of the U.S. population, they account for 66% of new HIV infections per year and more than 55% of all AIDS deaths since 1981. It's an absolute tragedy. When this deadly virus first appeared in major U.S. cities, it was called GRID. Did you know that? It was called GRID before it was called AIDS. Gay-related immune deficiency. That's what it was called in 1981. Now they changed the name. As of 2018, roughly 385,000 gay and bisexual men have died from AIDS in the U.S. That's almost half a million. That's unbelievable. And in many ways, I think it affirms Paul's statement in Romans chapter 1, verse 27. And I say this with love in my heart, with, with deep sorrow and sadness. But AIDS appears to be a type of due penalty homosexuals receive for their error. And they're not the only ones who receive it. If you're promiscuous, you run the chance of getting it, and it could be the due penalty you receive. Could be the due penalty that IV drug users use. It's out there. It's lethal. It's deadly. And it has been so concentrated on the quote-unquote gay community. You just, maybe you don't like what I'm saying, but these are facts. It could be that AIDS is a type of due penalty that these, these lost people receive for their error. And there is one that is, is truly declared in Scripture, and that's no entry into the kingdom of God because neither fornicators nor idolaters nor adulterers nor homosexuals nor sodomites nor thieves nor covetous nor drunkards nor revilers nor extortioners will what? Inherit the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. I think equally tragic is how Americans responded to the AIDS pandemic it's, it's, it's very sad how America has responded. Did Americans recognize the dangers of sexual immorality? No, of course not. Instead, they bolstered the homosexual movement. They foisted an alternative lifestyle upon heterosexuals and demanded that the government find a cure. Talk about adventures and missing the point. How tragic, how, how utterly sad. That's America. That's where we're at. Romans chapter 1, verse 28, next verse, Paul 
continues here, talking about God turning people over to their lusts. He says, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Paul is describing here in this incredible passage that really seems prophetic, he's describing a third and final thing that happens when God gives a society over to its lusts. You've got sexual revolution, you've got hetero or homosexual revolution, and now Paul says God gives them up to a debased mind. A debased mind is a mind that does not process information rightly. It does not understand right from wrong, good, or bad. It celebrates evil. It even punishes righteousness. To be given up to a debased mind is to be given over to insanity, or at least forms of insanity. Are we not seeing this in our culture? Are we not? Here's a a little list of some of the things that I've noticed lately, the insane things that I see happening in America. Firstly, probably be one of the most recent ones, and that would be the Major League Baseball, or the MLB, Major League Baseball, moving an all-star game from Atlanta because of some new voting laws in Georgia. In Georgia, they're found corruption and problems with voting, the problem with the polls, and they found various forms of corruption. And if you look anywhere, you'll find it. And so the Senate and the Congress in Georgia decided to pass legislation to try to curb some of that. And one of the things that they're saying is that, you know, when you go to vote, you need to present identification, which is standard issue in some states. Well, the MLB has been taken over by nut jobs and said, well, because you've done that, you're suppressing the vote, and we're not going to have our all-star game in a the Brave Stadium. They don't like the idea of mandatory ID for voting, and I have always supported that because it just makes sense. In fact, I think it was Cuomo or somebody said, hey, why don't you just go ahead and come up to New York and have the All-Star Game here. New York has all of those voting guidelines in place. You have to show ID. And <laughs> Insanity. Somebody described the MLB's move here as reckless and as foolish as the 1996 uh, strike that happened. And that's where I lost interest in baseball, when guys who were making $20 million for a five-year contract were griping about not getting enough money while I was working at Home Depot making a buck 19. I was like, I'm done with baseball. Baseball has given itself over to insanity. I never thought I'd see it. And today it, it's ran by crazies. Well, secondly, how about Lil Nas X Satan shoes? You might think, what on earth? That was like Greek. Well, Lil Nas is a rapper, pretty well known. Did that song Old Town Road with uh, Billy Ray Cyrus? Yeah, he's still around. He's had his achy breaky heart broken multiple times <laughs> since the 80s. This guy's a very, very well known hip hop star today, and he had some. Some Nikes made that have red trim. They're called Satan shoes. Red trim. There's a pentagram and real human blood in the soles. The first batch of 666 <laughs> sold out in less than a minute for 1,018 a pair. Unbelievable. Satan shoes. I feel like I need to get a hold of this little Nas X and tell them you're not going to be able to wear those to hell. It's just amazing the insanity that, that, that people would mock something like that. I, get, I, don't, I can't get my mind around it. They don't take these things serious. Thirdly, cancel culture. How many of you heard that phrase lately? That's a fun one. That's the cancellation of anyone who holds an opinion that is contrary to today's leftist ideology. No, I'm not attacking some of you liberal thinkers. I'm, talking, I'm attacking leftism, which is enemy to everything good. And cancel culture is something that they have developed. What it basically is is the destruction of the First Amendment. If you say something that doesn't square with the mainstream thought today, then you will be canceled. Cancel culture, that's insanity. Here's an example of cancel culture. 
Dr. Seuss books canceled and pulled from store shelves because of alleged racial images. Dr. Seuss, cat in a hat, no mas. I guess the image of a Chinese man eating rice, because there's never been a Chinese man who's ever eaten rice, I guess the image of a Chinese man eating rice in the book, and to think that I saw it on Mulberry Street, was the last straw for some people. How dare we depict a Chinese man eating rice? That's like depicting me eating buffalo wild, you know, wings and rings. And it's what I eat. It's what they eat. But somehow that just sent some people over the top. You know, it's those basement keyboard warriors, right? Find the next thing to get mad about today, and I'm going to tweet it. Get a job. How about this one? Hasbro. Renaming Mr. Potato Head, the entire Potato Head, Mr. Potato Head toy lineup, Potato Head, to satisfy the gender-sensitive people in our community and culture. Got to get rid of Mr. Potato Head, because that is insanely offensive. Just call it, I just, I just gave it a pronoun. What do you, just call Potato Head. Don't use a pronoun. This is insanity. Active shooters and mass shootings, that's insanity. We had 126 of them this year, 485 people injured, 145 people killed so far. We just had, we, we've had what, three or four in March already? They're happening again. And then to back that up, which I think is equally insane, is gun control. That's the government's response. Gun control, which means you take away the ability of law-abiding citizens to have firearms to defend themselves against active shooters. Cuckoo. I like what Senator John Kennedy said. He said, we need idiot control. <laughs> yeah. We need idiot control. Yeah, we do. There is a mental health issue problem in this nation. That needs to be addressed. But just, you know, creating legislation on top of legislation to control firearms, it doesn't do anything. This state has more gun control than almost any other state, New York too, and this is, this is a hub for this kind of activity. We can tell that it's not working. They need to come up with a different approach. Here's one that'll float your boat. Coca-Cola, be less white training for white employees. That's true. If you're a white employee, you need to learn to be less white. What am I going to put shoe polish on my face? This is insanity. Coca-Cola foisted this upon their employees. I would go to work for Pepsi. Uh, how about trans rights as the civil rights issue of our day? Not to pick on transsexuals, but that's the civil rights issue of our day? I need to wake up. I must have missed it. Immediately following that, you've got an executive order that was signed that allows trans men to compete in women's sports. That is insanity. That's craziness. It's completely unfair. It's still a man. That's not right. Here's one, and this one, this one will probably get your attention. The COVID-19 guidelines. Some people would say, well, that's just smart. No, that's insanity. The guidelines have been used to destroy the U.S. economy and to equip the government to print money on top of money, on top of money, on top of money. Why do you think you're getting stimulus? Because the government's ruined your livelihood. Maybe for some of you, maybe for some of you not. These guidelines destroyed my DJ business. I, I, I know that there's people out there that have gotten sick and died from this virus, I know, but I know the vast majority that have gotten it have not, they've had cold symptoms. And I think you need to take all these viruses and things serious, but this reproach, or this, it, it is a reproach, this approach going all the way back to Trump at the beginning of March of last year has been horrific, starting with him. 
face masks that don't stop the virus, lockdowns that don't stop anything, social distancing, which is awkward and weird, but if you're kind of socially awkward, it's probably a blessing, the destruction of the U.S. economy, and we have Bozo the Clown, Dr. Fauci up there, flip-flopping every other day. This is, it's been insanity since day one. To take something as maybe, quote-unquote, as serious as a virus like this and to handle it like a circus routine has just been bizarre and crazy to me. Here's an example of it. This is crazy. The removal of a mother with her six children from a flight to New, to New York City because her two-year-old daughter kept removing her face mask. They stopped the flight and took this mother and her children off the plane because the two-year-old kept pulling her face mask off. I'm glad I wasn't on that plane. Can you imagine a two-year-old making these babies wear these masks as insane as it is? How about prison reform? This is insane. You know, today's prison reform, it's an important thing that needs to happen, but the strategy in this state has been just to release dangerous criminals into our communities. That's prison reform. That's not prison reform. That's insanity. That's been Newsom's strategy, and he's doing it every day. And if you don't believe me, talk to John. He goes out and picks them up, then they get locked back up for 15 minutes, and they're back out there doing it again. Following that, we have something else that's insane, and that would be defunding the police. <laughs> One U.S. city is now reporting a 1,600% increase in murders. <laughs> what did you think would happen? You cancel out your gang unit? You know, I mean, it's like, did you hear about that in L.A. this last week? They're canceling out the gang unit where, you know, Boys in the Hood was filmed, Crips in the Bloods. Violent gangs are a reality in major cities and in many communities, and defunding the police has led to gang units being canceled out and all that, and increase in murders throughout the whole nation. It's insanity. Uh, here's one. Wokeness. Wokeness. Being woke. This is so important. Being woke means to be super sensitive to social and racial justice issues. I think we would all agree that we need to be mindful of these issues, but do we need to go to the point of wokeness? Right? Wokeness. And wokeness, the people that run this stuff, they pose a threat and they put a threat out there against industries and businesses. They basically say, if you ain't woke, you'll go broke. Why? Because we'll cancel you. That's a reality today in America, wokeness. How about the new sociology, 100 genders? 100 genders. This gender used to be a biological reality in our culture, in our society, but now they've turned it into a social construct and they can take it anywhere you want to be. 100 and counting genders now. I went through a list of them, and I, I, I thought I was looking at, at, at Hebrew numbers. It was just like symbol. I, I couldn't even keep up with all of it. That's the new sociology, 100 genders. How about gender identity instruction in kindergarten? Because, you know, kindergartens need to look within to figure out what they are. That's insanity to push the youngest little lambs in our culture to try to figure out what they are. Okay, so, so gender identity instruction in kindergarten is not about teaching boys to be boys and teaching girls to be about girls. It's about teaching them to look within to figure out what they feel like, and then once they express what they feel like, then the adults make sure that that child becomes what they feel like. That is insanity. And it's a reality. Backing that up, you've got sexual education in kindergarten. Yeah. It's terrifying to think once you start messing around with gender and now you're going to start teaching them about sexual education. What kind of sexual education are you giving them? Homosexual? and oh. Here's one that hits home with me and that's the Boy Scouts of America accepting and admitting girls. I was a Boy Scout. How dare you? 
Not that we don't like girls. But somebody once asked, uh, what's his name? The clever Jewish guy, Ben, ben, Shapiro. ben Shapiro. Like a girl stood up at a college and said, where in their bylaws or whatever does it say that they can't have girls in it? He goes, it's in the title, The Boy Scouts. <laughs> and she was just like, oh, let me think about that. And there's been a push for that for a while. Lastly, I'll hit you with this one. This is, this is disturbing. Drag Queen Story Hour. Pick a public library, and it's probably going on there, where they bring in the littlest children and have drag queens read them stories. Why? To normalize the behavior. That's what it is. You know what it is? It's insanity. Insanity. Not that we don't love drag queens, not that we don't love homosexuals, not that we don't love woke people or people who even push for defunding the police. I know that's hard for John. Not that we don't love Coca-Cola. I love Coca-Cola, but man, I got to figure out how to be less white. It's not that we don't love people, but these are, these are signs of the times, and they are examples of the insanity that, are, that is in our culture. America has exchanged the glory of the immortal God for naturalism. God is revealing His wrath against America. God has given America over to its lusts. America had a sexual revolution. It's in the midst of a homosexual revolution, and it very clearly has been given over to a debased mind insanity, right? Men today in America think they're women. Women think they're men. And the government is legislating to protect the insane and punish those who don't go along with it. You know what God's message to America is? It's the same message He gave to Israel through Isaiah. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 through 10. In other words, what is being said there? It's too late. It's too late. It's too late for America. It's too late. It is not, however, too late for God's elect in America or in any nation that is headed toward destruction. God will save His people, people from every tribe and tongue. He will surely save them. That's guaranteed. Now, I want you to notice, we slide back to Acts 17. I want you to notice something in verse 30. I want you to notice the urgency there. Notice how it says God is what? Commanding people everywhere to repent. He's commanding them, not suggesting, not asking, not inferring, not implying. Commanding people everywhere to repent. What does that mean? It means repentance is something sinners must do now. Why? Chapter 17, verse 31 because God has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. In other words, judgment is coming. On judgment day, God will judge the world in righteousness, and He will do it through the one He appointed as judge, the Lord Jesus. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus, Matthew 28, verse 18. And guess what? All judgment has been given to Jesus Christ. John chapter 5, verse 22. Christ will come and judge the world in righteousness. In the second half of Acts chapter 17, verse 31, Luke describes a sign that was given. This sign guarantees future judgment. What is it? It is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's your Easter part. The resurrection of Jesus Christ guarantees future judgment. The judge has been raised. The judge will judge. 
near the end of the 20th century, Hans Rukmaker wrote, If any confirmation is needed, go to the films, read the books of today, walk around a modern art gallery, listen to the music of our times, and hear, see, open your eyes and ears to the cries of despair, the cursing, the collapse of this world, and see your Lord coming with judgment. Judgment is coming. Today is the day of salvation and rescue from this judgment. Not tomorrow, not next week. God is commanding people everywhere, including in this audience today, to repent of sin and unbelief and trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. He is coming to judge the world in righteousness, and He surely will do it. But judgment isn't the only thing resurrection guarantees. It also guarantees salvation to those who repent and trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Sinners are saved by the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection is a key component in salvation. Paul said, if Christ hasn't been raised, our faith is futile, and we are still in our sins. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17. So, the resurrection of Christ guarantees future judgment, and it guarantees the salvation of those who repent and believe. Is that all? No. The resurrection guarantees two more important things. It guarantees sanctified, holy living for believers. The Spirit who raised Christ from the dead lives in us, the people of God. He gives life to these mortal bodies so that we are no longer debtors to the flesh who live according to the flesh, but are now adopted sons and daughters of God who are led by the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 8, verses 11 to 15. And then lastly... The resurrection of Christ guarantees the future resurrection and glorification of God's people. If we have been united with Christ in His death, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His, Romans chapter 6, verse 5. The resurrection and glorification of God's people will occur at the return of Christ, the second advent, and so will that judgment, by the way. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16. I'd like to go ahead and invite the worship team to come up. They can make their way up here. We have um, in the audience today, we have some folks who would like to provide a visual reminder of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ through baptism. Baptism is, is one of two sacraments that we have. The other is communion. Communion demonstrates the death of Christ. Baptism demonstrates the burial and resurrection of Christ. When a new believer is baptized, he or she is not only providing those who witness the baptism a visual reminder of the death and uh, burial and resurrection of Christ, they are actually testifying to their own spiritual rebirth or to the fact that they have been born again. And they are simultaneously pledging to die to themselves and to live for the one they now love, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it symbolizes. That's what you're going to have the joy of witnessing in just a few moments. Uh, those who are participating in that need to Go and change, me as well, and you guys can worship the Lord right now through song as we go do that and get ready. I, as in, just by way of application, I, for those of you who are in Christ, you think about the insanity that's going on around us. You think about God turning over America to a debased mind because of the homosexual revolution, the heterosexual revolution, the forsaking of God to natural things, right? That's what's happened Think about how you've been delivered from that and brought out of that insanity. 
and brought out from under that judgment. You have been liberated. How wonderful is that? But like Paul, we can't sit around and watch what's going on and hear what's ha- you know, hear the things and see the things that are going on and sit there waiting and be quiet. We need to be bold and preach the gospel, right? We, we live in an idolatrous land, do we not? We live in a sexually perverse land. Yes, we do. How can we sit around? Aren't we or shouldn't we be compelled to rise to the occasion and to speak the truth in love? That's what we must do. So be encouraged as you sing this song.